Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for your faithfulness. And I love that song, Lord, that we trust in you. And um, you're faithful. And I know, Lord, there's a lot going on today in, in our lives and in this world, Lord, but we, we trust you. And we know, Lord, that as chaotic as the world seems and Lord looks, Lord, we know that you're in full control. So, Father, we thank you. Lord. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would fill our hearts with your word. As we open your word, Lord, you speak to us. So, Father, Lord, have your way in our lives this morning. We pray for those who are sick right now that you touch them, Lord, and bring healing upon them, Father, Lord Jesus. Father, I decrease that you would increase. Empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself. Everything that I say and do, every thought that enters my mind would be of you and not of me. We praise in Jesus' name and all the gospel said. Amen. Amen. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. If you have your Bibles, Bible app, uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 5 is today's text. We're now in chapter 4 of part 9 of our series, Church Life. Say Church Life. Come on, more enthusiasm. Church Life. Like you have life. Amen. Church Life. And, and before we even dive into the text, as always, I, I want to do a quick review from last week's text. That was chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I gave you two points. And the first point of last week's text was the right conduct. Say that. And that's the verses 14 through 15. And Paul's purpose for writing was to give Timothy as a leader, as a pastor, practical information on how to run things in the church so that the family of God would know how to conduct themselves, especially as it comes to corporate church life. And Paul then makes it very clear that the church is whose house? It's God's house, not my house, not your house, but God's house. It's, it's his church, and he owns the church. He's the, the builder, the architect, and the ruler of the church. And since it's his house, we need to behave his way. And Paul also made it very clear that the church is a church of the living, living, say living, of the living God as opposed to dead idols. Paul then says that we, the church, are pillars holding high the truth, elevating the truth, and that we, the church, are built on the foundation of the truth, say truth. Therefore, the church has a responsibility for truth, to hold forth and to stand firm on the truth. The second point was the right confession. Everyone say that. The right confession, that's in verse 16 of chapter 3. And so after talking about uh, the church's duty to the truth, Paul now describes the primary context of that truth, and he simply says it's clear to all of us believers, it's common, in other words, common confession, it's common testimony that this revealed mystery of godliness to be found in Christ, it's great. In other words, it's mega huge, it's awesome, it's incredible. And then, in the remainder of the text, Paul gives six distinct statements with Jesus as the subject of each statement and the sum total of these six statements because he, Jesus, is the center and the source of our belief. Also, the remainder of the verse introduces a creed or a creedal statement or a short hymn of praise. And what it is, it's a summary of Christian truth. Say Christian truth. And we, you know, we followed that right last week. The fact, what is it? Well, it's the incarnation. 
the incarnation. He appeared in a body. That's deity funneled itself into humanity. It's also the vindication uh, was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, Jesus was declared right. His ministry was declared legitimate by the Spirit of God. He was shown to be exactly who he was. So we saw there that the incarnation, the vindication, also the ascension, it says, was seen by angels. And we know that they, the angels, announced his coming to Mary and Joseph and, uh, and, and also his birth to the shepherds. And they also, the angels, strengthened him in the wilderness and during his temptation. And they appeared at his tomb and they watched him ascend, say ascend, into the heavens. The incarnation, the vindication, the ascension. And remember this, the proclamation. It says, the text says, was preached among the nations. From Pentecost until this day, we're still preaching about Jesus. Amen? And then he says the reception, the text says, was believed on in the world. This is the response to the gospel. People are still responding to the gospel. In fact, someone got saved last week in the first service. Amen? And then the last one was the exaltation. The sixth statement is the exaltation. It says, was taken up in glory. So it's the crown of his exaltation. And he, Jesus, has ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father with all authority in heaven and in earth. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of the message today is Fraudulent Faith. Say that. So in today's text, Paul returns to his attack on the heresy which was finding its way into the church. And what he does, Paul warns Pastor Timothy, again, about false teachers, and the danger, say danger, they pose to the church and how the church can tell truth from error. Someone said this. Wherever the light of the gospel shines, the shadow of false doctrine lurks closely behind. Isn't that true? Now, from the very get-go of this letter, 1 Timothy, Paul addresses the issue of false doctrine that had been introduced to the church by fraudulent, corrupt leaders. Now, he already, Paul had already, had already stated certain things related to what they were introducing in the church. And, and you might remember this back in chapter 1, okay, you might remember this. Back in chapter 1, Paul points out that they were introducing bad doctrine. They were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They were also spouting uh, worthless words instead of the truth of the gospel. They also had misunderstood the law of Moses. Remember that? The law of Moses, as well as misunderstanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Paul does, and I love this about Paul, Paul names names. You guys with me? Paul identified those who were spreading false doctrine, and Paul was never afraid to point out opponents of the truth by name. And the two names were Hymenius, right? Remember this? And Alexander, right? He called them out. Now, in Acts, I want you to write this down. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, Acts 20, verses 30, 29, excuse me, through 30, tells of Paul's last recorded visit to Ephesus, where he called the elders of the church. And he gives his farewell to them, and he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, in the church, he's talking about now, will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, Paul's warning was prophetic. Now, those false teachers had infiltrated the church, so this is what Timothy was having to deal with. Now, I want you to write this down. Romans, Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. Write that down. I'm going to read it to you, because there in Romans 16, 
verses 17 through 18, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary, say contrary, to the teaching you have heard. He says this, keep away from them. Everyone say that. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Listen, there, there's always a danger of people, we know this, right, adding or subtracting from the Word of God. And you see, the church's role is to be the guardian of the truth, the guardian, guardian of the truth, to keep the Word of God pure. And, and, and to, to not, not to mix the pure word of God with, with man's ideas or feelings of what the pure word of God says. Now, I want to remind you, okay, I want to remind you that today's text here in chapter 4 comes right after Paul gave us an amazing credo statement, right? A short hymn of praise, the central truths, essential doctrine that constitutes the Christian faith. Now, now, if you're safe, say amen. We got to be very, very careful, friends, listen now, of putting ourselves in situations or listening to certain teachings where we can be easily influenced by false teachings. You guys with me? And this is why, this is why Paul warns Timothy about it in the first five verses of this chapter and then, and then takes uh, the, re the remainder of the chapter, and we'll look at that next week, okay, to detail Timothy's response to it in the church. Two points in the text. If you're ready, say yes. Number one is this, the threat. Write that down, say the threat. The threat. Write that down, the threat. And listen, church, we need to be concerned about false teaching, and we need to know the characteristics, the characteristics of false teaching, because false teaching is a major threat to the godliness of the church and its status as the pillar in truth and the dwelling place of the living God. Can I get an amen? So verse 1, here we go. The Spirit, say Spirit, clearly might be rendered explicitly or expressly, says that in later times, or your King James latter times, I want to stop there. The Spirit clearly, right, explicitly, expressly. So this means that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is being very clear in his warning. And what he's saying is this. This is going to happen. What the Spirit says is going to happen. And Paul is telling Timothy that the source of, of his information is the Holy Spirit. Amen? That the Holy Spirit is speaking in such a way that it is unmistakable unmistakably clear. It's not based on, on human speculation. It's not based on human thinking. It's straight from the Spirit of God. You guys got it? Let's look at the text again. The Spirit clearly or explicitly, expressly says that in later times, latter times, some will abandon the faith. Say, say, say later times. Say latter times. Later times, same thing, latter times refers to the entire church age and it began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You guys got that? If you got it, say got it. The, the later times or latter times is more properly understood when it's translated in succeeding seasons. Succeeding seasons, there will be many departing from the faith. I'm going to say that again. In succeeding seasons, 
there will be many departing from the faith. And this is something that's going to go on throughout the whole course of Christian history in succeeding seasons of times. If you got it, say got it. And it will grow in intensity, intensity, in the days leading up to the rapture. Now let's, let's read the text again. In later times or latter times, some will abandon the faith. Say, abandon the faith. They will leave the faith. They will abandon the faith, which is the body of truth of the Christian belief system. They abandon that. They abandon the central truths. They abandon essential doctrine that constitutes the Christian faith. And you see, friends, in the later or latter times, there will be a deliberate, this is now, a deliberate rejection of biblical truth, a deliberate rejection of Christian doctrine. They don't embrace the faith. They abandon the faith. And we see that today, don't we? We see that today. Now, I want you to follow me here. Here. The word depart or the word abandon is related to our English word apostasy. Say apostasy. Those, listen now, who depart, those who abandon the faith become apostates. Apostates are those, got to get this now, apostates are those who make a temporary response to the gospel but have no genuine faith in God. You guys with me? Those are apostates. And you see, these false teachers didn't start off as false teachers, but they moved away to being false teachers. They walked away from the gospel. They walked away from the full deity and full humanity and the sinless life of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, resurrection, and the fact that he and he alone is the Savior. They departed from that truth. Now, we need to remember the words of John and 1 John. Write that down. I'm going to read it to you. You can turn to it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. And you might remember this because we, we covered this in our series, Authentic, not about several months ago. Remember that? And in 1 John 2, 19, John writes, they, speaking of the Antichrist, Antichrist, types of Antichrist, false prophets, those teaching heresies in the church, that's speaking of they. They, and by the way, let me say this. It's interesting that in the history of cults and the history of false teachers and anti-Christian religious systems that in most cases, you will find that their founders started out in the local church. So John says, 1 John 2.19, they, they went out from us. You guys with me? Now, now John's not talking about people who change fellowships. Okay, he's talking about, okay, people who forsake fellowships, those who defected from the fellowship. And then John affirms this. He says, but they did not really belong to us. So he says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. They, why? Because they were apostates, not true believers. They were wolves in sheep's clothing, not of the same gospel, not of the same doctrine. They were not of us. And then he says this, for which introduces an explanation. So they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. And here, for, introduces the explanation, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Did you get that? But they're going out, show that none of them belong to us. You see, they appeared to be genuine followers. They, listen, they knew the Christian lingo. They, they looked the part. 
They even sung the same songs. They even hung out with other believers, but they weren't genuine believers. They were superficial. They didn't possess spiritual life. They were only professors of the faith, not possessors of the faith. They rejected Christ. They rejected the church. They rejected the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. Now, if they were authentic, genuine, right, believers, if they belonged to the faith, John said they would have what? Remained with us, right? They would have continued in the fellowship, but they didn't. They did. Therefore, they don't belong. They're, they were apostates. They, they were never truly saved. They have a, a different spirit. They have a different gospel. They, they preach a different Jesus. Now, now, after telling Timothy of how apostasy will mark the last days or latter days, he reveals the instigators of these apostasies. So let's go back to our text, the text, okay? We're back to the text here in 1 John. I mean, excuse me, First uh, Timothy. He says, and follow, after talking about them abandoning or leaving the faith, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, or rendered as well as doctrines of demons. So they, they were deceived. These, these teachers were, were deceived. They think they, they're, that, that they're teachers of the truth. They think that they have it right. Uh, they believe that their way is a, is a better way, but they're deceived. Say deceived, okay? They're deceived. They're deceived by demon spirits and, and now embrace what Paul calls the teachings, the doctrines of, of demons. Now, it may be that these teachings were initially received as a false prophet was under the influence of a spirit, not the Holy Spirit, okay, but a different spirit. There was a demonic supernatural component to these false teachers and their false teachings. In fact, I want you to write this down in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Genesis 3, 4 and 5 in the Garden of Eden. Guess what we see there? We see the first demonic doctrine. You guys with me? And there Satan speaking through a serpent taught Eve said this, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you will eat of, the day you eat of it will, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And so, and since then, since then, every demonic doctrine has found its way back to this root, that you'll be like God, right? And the idea that we can be gods and operate independent from God is false. Listen, Satan has continued to use deception, doubt, subtlety to lead people astray. And, and he's the father of lies, and he's the murderer from the very beginning, Amen. And by the way, let me say this. Satan has his systematic theologies. And not just his systematic theologies, he also has his commentaries as well. And he has his professors, he has his, his pastors and evangelists. In fact, he has set up a false church. Got to get this, okay? Beside the true church. And sadly and tragically, friends, he often is more effective than the true church. Now I want to say this. A person who claims to have some revelation or idea that they receive through some spiritual means doesn't mean, necessarily mean, it's from God. You guys with me? If you're saved, say amen. Get this. I'm going to say it again. Just because something has a supernatural feel to it doesn't mean that it's from God because there are other spirits than just the Holy Spirit at work. There's demonic spirits. 
they are false demonic spirits that oppose the true spirit of God. So you guys ready for the lesson? Here's the lesson. Test the spirits, church. Right? I'm, I'm blown away of the church today how undiscerning they are. we got to be discerning. Amen? So let's go back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. And we covered this in our series, Authentic. 1 John 4, 1. You can turn to it or I'll read it to you. Say, test the spirits. Because in 1 John 4, 1, John says, Dear friends, means believers, do not believe every spirit. Do you get that? I want to stop there. Do not believe is the imperative move. It's a verb form that gives a command. Okay, so John is commanding all the believers, do not believe every spirit. It's also in the present tense, which means this is constant and continual. John is simply challenging us, believers, to stop being so gullible, Stop being so naive. Stop being so undiscerning. Stop being so foolish, church. Don't believe everything that we hear. And he's warning and he's commanding us on a constant, continual basis not to believe, not to trust every single spirit. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. But test the Spirit. Say that. This is an imperative mood. Again, it's a command. We are being commanded to test the Spirit. So we as a church, we have the responsibility to test the spirits. Amen? And this is something that we must do. It is also in the present tense. We are to always be testing the spirits. Now, in part seven of our series of 1 Timothy, you might remember as we covered the deacons and deaconesses, remember that? That they are to be tested, right? Now, it's not on your screen, but you might remember the Greek word for test is dokimatso, right? Dokimatso means to examine, to prove, to scrutinize, to see whether a thing is genuine or not. So we are to test the spirit. So this begs the question, how do we test the spirits? I mean, how do we identify the doctrines of demons? I'll tell you how, by immersing ourselves in the true doctrine, the Word of God. Can I get an amen? In other words, the test of all teaching or doctrine is in the Word of God. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, as Christians, our authority is, listen now, our authority is not reason, it's not feelings, it's not emotions or experience, but the infallible Word of God. Therefore, we must know the Word of God. We must know the Word of God if we're going to be able to distinguish truth from error. Distinguish who is speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit and who is speaking under the influence of a demonic spirit. We must read and study our Bibles. Amen? And listen, when we know what God says on any given subject, when we know that, then any deviation from that teaching will send up a red flag. Because we're so filled with true doctrine, we hear something off, ah, that ain't right. Nah. Ah. Right? That that ain't right. Amen? Paul then, Paul then, I love this, then goes on further to describe these false teachers, um, apostates. Verse 2. Such teachings, besides not believing in the deity and all that about Christ, right, come through hypocritical liars. Now I want to stop there. 
In other words, they don't tell the truth. Listen, get this. As God speaks truth and uses people to share it, so Satan speaks lies and uses people to share it. Right? Hypocrites appear one way, but are actually another. They might say one thing and do the opposite, right? That's a hypocrite, right? Or they might present themselves as having one motivation when they actually have another. And they can be so deceived by the demonic influence that they have a level of sincerity in what they think and what they say. They believe what they say is true. You see, false teachers deny the things in the Bible. They deny it. And, and they add things that are not in the Bible and subtract things from the Bible. And what they do is they multiply and they divide, but they won't stay true to the Word of God. Why? Because they're hypocritical liars. They have lived so long in their lies that guess what? They believe them. And Paul proves this. Let's read on. Whose consciences have been seared with what? Hot iron. And the reason the false teachers can be full of lies and hypocrisy and may not even know it is that they have a seared conscience as opposed to a good conscience. With me? Now the word seared means cauterized, right? Refers to the branding or searing or burning that desensitizes and and deadens the nerves. So their consciences are cauterized with a hot iron. Their consciences, in other words, as I'm going to say it again, their consciences have lived so long in the lies of their life, they believe them. They are no longer able themselves to tell the difference between truth and error because, right, their consciences are burned with a hot iron. And because of that, their consciences are made dull. Their conscience is numbed, dead, insensible to the truth, to the distinction between right and wrong. They can't tell. Their conscience was stamped with the brand mark of Satan's ownership. And therefore, friends, they are beyond the reach of conscience. They are to the point of no return at which they are full. Here we go. Apostates. Say apostates. They have found a way in their own minds to justify their lies. Now listen, these false teachers, and I want you to get this, may be personable, charming, you guys with me, and persuasive, but they do not receive their message from the Holy Spirit. Rather, they spout the suggestions of evil spirits whose work is to lead people astray. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a what? Hot iron. So you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Maintain a good conscience. Amen? Maintain a good conscience. Well, how do we do that? I'm glad you asked. Here we go. Be in the Word. Saturate your life with the Word. To maintain a good conscience, the conscience, listen now, must square with the Word of God. You see, a good conscience, one which squares with God's word, keeps us sensitive to God's voice, to God's word, to God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, it will guide and govern our lives. Therefore, we know what's right and what's wrong, what's truth, what's error, amen? So it's important that you and I, again, that we fill ourselves with the word of God. 
Paul then, stay with me now, Paul then gives us two examples of their false teachings, false doctrines, as I said earlier, besides them not believing in the deity of Christ, right, his resurrection. Verse 3a, they forbid people to marry. Huh. And order them to abstain from certain foods. So specifically, these false teachers forbade marriage and the eating of, of some foods. And they taught that you would be more holy to God if you didn't marry and more holy to God if you didn't eat certain foods. So I want you to follow me here. At the heart of this false teaching, besides them denying Christ and all that stuff, is asceticism and legalism. Okay? And what they did, they combined Jewish legalism with Eastern asceticism. Now, asceticism, listen now, asceticism is the idea that abstinence from physical things, pleasure, such as sex and marriage, is essential in their minds for spiritual purity. Don't get married. Don't, don't get married. Don't have sex in your marriage because you what? If you don't do that because you're more pure to God if you don't do that. That's what they're thinking. That self-denial pleasure somehow pleases God, brings you closer to God, that you will gain favor with God through self-denial. In fact, it was Luther, Martin Luther, when he was in the monastery there, you know, he denied sleeping on his bed and slept on a cold floor naked because he felt that would make him closer to God. That's asceticism. You guys with me? Legalism, we know this is man-made rules, right? The do's and don'ts to try to gain favor from God. Now, these are my rules, and if you don't follow my rules, you're not close to God. That's legalism, amen? So we see their teaching here beyond denying the deity of Jesus Christ. So that's the threat, right? Now, number two, here we go, is the truth. Say the truth. And I love this because Paul then, what he does, he gives a rebuttal of their false teaching. And what he does, he confronts their false teachings with the truth. So after pointing out their doctrine of asceticism, forbidding marriage and legalism, forbidding certain foods, Paul says this in verses 3b to verse 5, second part of verse 3 all the way through verse 5, which God created in context of marriage and food to be received with what? Thanksgiving by those who believe and who know what? The truth. Verse 4, for everything God created in context, marriage and what? Food, right? For everything God created, context, marriage and food, is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with what? Thanksgiving, verse 5, because it is consecrated in other words, sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So we know the truth, right? Come on, if you're safe, say amen. Okay, we know the truth. We know that God doesn't forbid marriage. Why? Because it was God who created marriage. Amen? In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said it's not good for man to be alone. So he created a woman, right, as a helpmate, teammate, right, to come alongside and to help him and to, to complete him. In Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, Jesus put a seal of approval on marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, Paul affirmed the biblical basis for marriage. If you're saved, say amen. God created marriage. And he created marriage. Marriage is good, amen? And he created marriage. Marriage is good. And he created sex. And sex is good as long as it's in the boundaries of marriage. And in the boundaries of marriage between a man 
and a woman. You see, believers who know the truth, if they know God's word, they're not impressed with asceticism. You guys with me? Not impressed with the do's and don'ts of legalism because they know the truth that God not only created marriage, but also food. Food. Speaking of food, in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, there Jesus stated that all foods are clean. He taught this lesson again to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and reaffirmed it through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 33. Now, now, now if you're safe, say amen. Listen, Christians, we are not limited by any kind of diet. You ought to shout amen. What we, this is, this is the point, what we eat does not make us more righteous before God. Or what we don't eat. Amen? Now, if you're a vegan and you eat organic stuff and, and brown rice, good for you. Good for you. Okay? All right? And, and I won't judge you for that, and don't judge me for eating meat and having a good time eating. Amen? Amen? But sometimes when you get so caught up in legalism, right, Jay, just eat and ask God bless it. Amen? Because God, listen, talk about marriage and food in context, right? They were saying, hey, don't marry and don't eat certain foods. They were, they were stuck to the Jewish dietary laws. But God is the one who gave us marriage. And he gave us marriage for procreation, illustration, sanctification, also for pleasure, and for having the one that we love next to us. Amen? God is the one who gives us food, what? To help sustain us. You got to eat, man. You got to eat. Okay? Now, don't eat too much, okay? But everything God created is good. And in context here, marriage and food, but we can abuse. God's good gifts by fornication and gluttony. Huh? Right? So we're going to wrap this up soon. You guys ready for the lesson? Here's the lesson. Be thankful. Just be thankful, man. See, Paul, Paul's point is just, just be thankful for the things that God has given us in context, marriage and food, right? In context. And the important thing is to receive them and be thankful to God for them. Now, I want to say this and get this. To give thanks for our marriage and for a meal and then complain about it, it's inconsistent. All right? God don't like that. Okay? Let's look at the end of the text real quick here before we close. He says, because it is consecrated, sanctified by the word of who? And what? Prayer. I believe what Paul is driving at here is this. It's things used in a thankful, prayerful, biblical way become holy. Say become holy. The food we eat and the blessing of sexuality within a marriage can be more than just good. It can be holy sanctified, and used for God's glory when used as God intended it to be 
used. Amen? So I'll stand.